On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I'm launching Season 2. I'm going to share my interview with Brad Bingham of Bingham Built Bicycles in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I uh, get on the phone and I talk to somebody in the bike frame building world. This is usually a frame builder. It's usually somebody who has their own shop, you know, builds under their own sort of brand name. And somebody who's been doing it a while has some, some you know, level of uh, expertise about what they, they have to say and offer. And my guest this week is Brad Bingham. He started building bikes in the 90s. He took a course at UBI and then he, uh, he went on to get a job at uh, Moots you know, the titanium bike frame company. He welded in production there for something like 15 years. He got a ridiculous amount of practice. Then he he went over to uh, Kent Erickson Cycles. Kent Erickson, of course, was one of the co-founders of Moots. And so uh, he left Moots in uh, 2005 or something to start Kent Erickson Cycles. And it was a couple years later that Brad uh, moved over to Kent Erickson. And so Brad and Kent have been working together for a while. And then they arranged a buyout, which I think that transition period is over now. And now uh, Kent Erickson Cycles is mostly phased out. It has become Bingham Built Bicycles. And so Brad Bingham uh, builds uh, these just exceptional world-class titanium handmade bicycles uh, in Steamboat Springs, which from everything I've heard is just this gorgeous ski town in uh, in the Rockies. And it's uh, wonderful if you love skiing and outdoor recreational stuff, as uh, Brad clearly does. And so uh, anyway, really cool to get his, his uh, opinion on stuff, especially the TIG welding process. So if you don't know Brad's work, he is an absolutely insane TIG welder. His TIG welds, it's just hard to imagine that a human can do this good of a job. In the bike frame building world, there's a lot of people who really kind of drive themselves mad trying to get perfect TIG welds. And so there's a lot of people who are really good at it. But uh, Brad's work is just second to none. It just rocks my rocks my world whenever I see the, the welds that he posts. And I just cannot imagine what it takes to get that good at it. So, uh, of course, I asked him a fair amount of questions about the, the process and how he learned to, to do that so well. Just to give a little bit of update about what I'm up to. And, uh, you know, I, I was doing this podcast every week for 26 weeks. I'm really proud of that. I didn't, I didn't really fail to produce an episode ever in that stretch. And I kind of fell off the wagon for a while. But we're back. Uh, uh, hold me to it, but, uh, you can count on new episodes again every Monday. I've been, uh, just running my own business and working on all sorts of stuff. You know, the holidays has a way of, uh, throwing a wrench in things and, uh, throwing off your routines, but, uh, I'm back in it. I've been working on a frame building fixture, uh, for production, you know, for sale and, uh, release to the public. And I'm, I'm getting that closer all the time. Not to mention, I just, even though I don't have a huge product line, I'm really the only person who makes any of it or works in my shop. I have one CNC mill. And so, uh, you know, it's it's an incredibly productive machine, but it just takes a lot of labor always to do the setups and program things and, you know, handle parts, get them to anodizing, yada, yada, yada. Shipping stuff, shipping is huge. So anyway, uh, you know, that's what I've been working on, but I'm uh, excited to get the podcast launched again because it was a really good part of my weekly routine for six months there. And I know there was at least a handful of people who uh, really enjoyed listening to it every week. One of the things about a podcast is it's really hard to know how many people are listening and who really cares because you don't get a lot of analytics when you post stuff to Instagram or YouTube or whatever, it'll tell you about the numbers of views, how many likes, how many comments. Uh, podcasting doesn't give you a whole lot of great data. So if you do appreciate the show, please let me know. Tell me something you appreciated or uh, a segment that you think I should do, a guest you think I should get on the show, uh, whatever. Anyway, without further ado, so here's the uh, interview with Brad just as we recorded it. Yeah, so it goes back to growing up um, I grew up just outside of Portland, Oregon, about 20 miles southwest, and a few things just really fell into place. Um, I grew up cycling, of course, like, you know, family trips and riding with my dad and just fun stuff. I never never raced BMX, um, although, dear, you know the movie BMX Bandits? Yeah. That was absolutely one of my favorites as a kid growing up um mm -hmm. so i was always on two wheels but i 
I actually um, r- rode motorcycles and raced motocross as an early teen. Mm-hmm. And so just being on two wheels constantly. Um, and then into high school, I wasn't, wasn't a great student, wasn't a terrible student, but really just had a desire to always make things. And I really enjoyed uh, metal shop. Mm-hmm. And we had, um, you know, sharing the property line of my high school was the world's largest dental equipment manufacturer. Wow. So they had a pretty large campus, like a thousand or so people employed there at that time. And um, a lot of their, I, th- I think there was a you know, little bit of uh, tooling, you know, retired tooling that would move over to the high school metal shop from ADEC. And so our metal shop was awesome. The teacher was amazing. Uh, this guy named Terry Koss and just had a blast in metal shop. And that evolved into an opportunity to work a cooperative work experience program over at ADEC mm-hmm. at the dental equipment manufacturer in their engineering department. Well, you were still in so, high school. Yeah. So I, I, I applied for the position as a sophomore and then in high school, and then started the position first of my junior year in high school. Mm-hmm. So I only went to high school from like 8.30 in the morning till 11.30, mm-hmm. and then I would, wor- I would work at ADEC from 12 to 5 every day. Wow. And that was awesome. And that, that's where, you know, I just uh, I started riding mountain bikes a lot more with a couple of the engineers there and, and one guy in particular, um, my buddy, Sean Irwin, and he just, yeah, just drove me to be, you know, a, a more creative thinker, um, ride bikes more, get out more and, and just do more. So my time there, um, I was riding bikes and at the time I had uh, a couple of Cannondales and I broke a couple of aluminum Cannondales. This was like 90, I guess it would have been 93, 94, mm-hmm. something like that. And uh, when I broke the second one, Sean just said, why don't you just build your own? <laughs> and I was like, oh, hey, man, that's a good idea. So I think it was uh, senior year in high school. Um, and I I just, I got after, I was like, okay, what do I need to do? Uh, I need to learn how to TIG weld. Okay, go take a, so I took a um, community college course at one of the campuses there in Portland and did a TIG course and figured that out. And a buddy of mine had a synchrowave in his garage and, you know, just a lot of back and back and forth and building some tooling, designing stuff. And um, next thing you knew, I was trying to put together a frame and I, and I did successfully. Were you trying to build, build it out of aluminum or steel or what? No, I, my first frame I built out of Reynolds 853 because mm-hmm. um, that was like brand new at the time. Mm-hmm. I, um, I, w- I would have liked to have built a titanium bike perhaps or, or even an aluminum bike. Um, but I think I realized that steel was the economical way to do it. Yeah. Um, and then, but then of course... Uh, I've always been someone to kind of be like, okay, well, what's the best steel available currently? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, well, cool. There was this new 853 out. Let's, let's try that. And that stuff was a pain in the ass to miter. Yeah. Um, but, uh, was that something anyway, so I, at, at that time, mm-hmm. did you need to have an account with Reynolds and like the, um, I know there used to be hoops that you had to jump through like in the eighties to mm-hmm. get some of the, I think the air hardening stuff, was that difficult to source or not? I, for the, no way can I possibly remember even where I got that. <laughs> I have no idea. Gotcha. Um, I know that I bought at least two or three frame sets worth of tubing at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, because I still had a tube set when I moved out here to Colorado and I actually built a steel moots years later mm-hmm. um, with Kent out of that same tubing. But uh, 
so that was would have been the summer of that would have been like the winter or summer spring of ninety six mm-hmm. I guess I built my first steel bike um, and then uh, then that, and that was cool and successful and i was I was stoked with what I learned, but I, I certainly wasn't ready to go into any kind of production mm-hmm. and it wasn't really on my on my mind um, to go into production, but I chose not to go to college. Um, I chose to stay on with with ADEC and and work a little while and just kind of see where things went. Yeah, you mentioned that in the email that you saw something about the culture of like mm-hmm. the reality of if you did become a mechanical engineer like some of these people you knew mm-hmm. and looked up to, that the reality mm-hmm. of that maybe wasn't um, what some people would assume. <clears throat> and you'd maybe, I, I guess I'm assuming you'd be, mm-hmm. you realize maybe you'd be further ahead to just focus on uh, going directly after what you were interested in? Or, or how did that go for you? I get, yeah, I think I I did realize that if I if I went to if I went to college and became a mechanical engineer, I'd probably be spending a vast majority of my time in a in a chair behind a desk. Yeah, and that just had there. Boy, it it just didn't turn me on. <laughs> um, I and I and that kind of threw me for a loop a little bit um, because that would have been my direction mm-hmm. uh, for sure. But um, I, I did enjoy, you know, I had the opportunity to spend some time with some of the, the manufacturing engineers, um, the guys who worked on a lot of the, the, the assembly lines, if you will, and mm-hmm. the, worked with a lot of the developing new, new tools, new ways of putting things together. And I, I've, I found that re- really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so perhaps that would have been something I would have liked to have, specialized in but um again i just i just said no i'm not gonna go to go to college just yet i'm just gonna kind of think about it for a while yeah and and uh then through that summer of 96 um i forget the date exactly um but uh i was in a fairly decent car accident oh no (laughs) and yeah, I wasn't hurt badly, but um, ended up walking away with some money, and that was enough. I actually bought a kind of bought a nicer van again, traveled a bunch, played a bunch, but I was able to then sell that van and pay for my UBI class in the fall. Mm-hmm. You know, I think uh, I think Mike DeSalvo had a similar story where he like he he had an old Volkswagen bus or van that he sold in order to go to UBI, didn't he? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't doubt it. That's probably like one in ten people. That's how they fund UBI, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Either, yeah. Anyhow. Yeah, either their Volkswagen <laughs> broke down on the way to UBI, <laughs> or, or they sold it to get to UBI. That's right. Anyhow. Um, but yeah, so uh, that got me uh, the opera because UBI was quite expensive um, at the time. I remember, I think it was three thousand or thirty five hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. for the Thai course and that was a that was a huge chunk of change for um I guess I would have been 19. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a big chunk of change and I was like, well, I could sell the van and pay for that. <laughs> so, that's what happened and ended up there in uh, December of 96. And um you know, had Gary Helfrich mm-hmm. and um, Jim Kish as instructors, and it was super good experience, just a a great opportunity because I also um, I think it was I think Adam Sklar brought this up in your interview was like bring something to show mm-hmm. or kind of like already 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 have some experience if you will yeah um, and I I came to that class having already built a steel bike. I was in the middle of a project building uh, titanium cranks. Oh, wow, cool. So, yeah, so I had already sourced and you know, sourced the spiders and had them water jet cut, and I was machining them manually on a mill, and um, I had already, like, I was doing this clamshell, kind of weld-together arm, kind of like the old Marathis. Wow. And uh, 
So I had tons of experience going into UBI, mm-hmm. and that just that just made the experience so much better because mm-hmm. I I, I kind of had all these questions to ask yeah. that that you would never ask if you hadn't already kind of fumbled. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Uh, um, you know, yeah. Yeah. So, and, uh, yeah. And then, um, uh, towards the end of the class, I recall them, I recall, I think it was, uh, Ron, it was like, if any, you know, if, if you're okay with having your name out there in the world, if you're looking for work in the bike industry, let us know. And, uh, I immediately raised my hand pretty much and said, put me down, whatever list there is. And very soon after the class, I got a call from Moots. Wow. And, uh, yeah, yeah. They were looking for a, they were looking for a welder. Um, by that time, had you, had you considered like trying to go work at, you know, seven or Moots or one of these kinds of companies? Was that on your radar at that point? (laughs) No, no. Uh, full disclosure, I did not know who Moots was. <laughs> I was, uh, you know, I was, the Northwest is kind of a funny, a funny area with its, with its folks. And we were, I don't know, we were really um, kind of had our blinders on to some of those smaller builders out there in the world. We were like Cannondale, Lightspeed, just kind of the big brands. Mm-hmm of the, of the era. Um, and no, I had not considered, uh, going to work for anybody like a moot size operation. I mean, seven didn't exist then. Mm -hmm. And, um, and yeah, I didn't even know it was really an option. Um, I was just a young, young punk. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what you're saying about your experience in high school and, you know, your, your friend suggesting, why don't you build your own? For me, Mm -hmm. I saw frame building as something that other people were doing and I thought it looked really cool. Like the the very beautiful Mm -hmm. handmade bikes. And it sounds like Mm -hmm. maybe for you, you were less aware of there being this phenomenon of of people who hand make bikes. And instead you just wanted to make something because you liked it and you liked bikes. Like, do you remember some of your earliest like um favorite frame builders or things that you saw and really gravitated toward or did you just kind of stumble into it i would have to say i i more so stumbled into it Mm -hmm. um yeah absolutely we would go to bike shows um like you know seattle the seattle bike expo Mm -hmm. um things like that and i i was really drawn to titanium bikes anytime i saw a Merlin, um, so and like tie cycles, mm-hmm. um, tie cycles. Quite a few years ago, Dave Levy, those guys, he was I, um, he was right there at the ferry terminal in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so right down, like right near the water. And my sister lived on Bainbridge Island for years, um, and for a while, my dad lived on his sailboat on Bainbridge Island as well, and so every time we would go up there, I would have to pop in with my dad. He would always take me. We'd pop our heads into tie cycles and see what was going on. That's awesome. And, uh, so I'd say, I'd say it was kind of those guys, um, Klein, the Klein era, mm-hmm. um, was pretty popular for, in, in my mind, um, because just bright colors, you know, faded paint jobs, new, kind of new thinking around bikes yeah um with the gigantic beer can tubes <laughs> um and and then of course like i think i was very interested in new technologies so some of those first bonded like carbon aluminum bikes um there's one i think it was the prism mm-hmm. do you remember the prism frame uh... the yeah, those were those were something that always caught my eye. Um, and then, uh, like seeing the first kestrels in shops, I was just blown away. Um, but yeah. it was, but it was really going into into bike shops for me. But you know, I could, if I scrounged up all my pennies, I could afford like a a, a low range 
Cannondale. <laughs> and, and that's that's what I would get. That's, that's yeah. what I rode. And then, you know, as I started to earn a little more money, I'd, I'd soup it up, get nice, get nice hubs, build up wheels, learning, learning to build wheels and stuff. That was all fun as a teenager. So when you started to work at Moots, um, mm-hmm. you know, like you, you signed up on the UBI list and then you got a call yeah. from Moots, you moved to Steamboat. Uh, what, what, what was that process like when you started there? So they, they actually, they asked me to come out here for a visit first. Mm-hmm. Um, so I came out, it was January of 97. And so, and I grew, I did grow up skiing, um, on Mount Hood mostly. And so I came out here and I remember it was a pretty big year and there were piles of snow outside of the shop. And I was just like, oh man, this is, this is too much. I, I got to get out here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went home. So yeah, I, I accepted the job. They actually offered me less money than I was making at ADEC. Um, <laughs> so I, I took the job for less money, uh, moved out here about, about a month and a half later, I believe it was, and uh, moved out here in a, in a, in a uh, VW bus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that barely made it. <laughs> and, um, and then one of the first jobs was helping out the guys. Uh, it was kind of getting close to springtime, so everything was melting. Uh, but we basically moved everything out of the shop that I'm in now. Mm-hmm. We, moved it, we moved everything out of here and out to a uh, more industrial space that was larger. And just got got cracking. Um, things were really busy then for Moots because it was um, cross country mountain bike racing was kind of going off. And um, over that next year or so, year and a half, we had Ruthie Mathis as a you know, female national champion mm-hmm. racing cross racing cross country on a Moots YBB the soft tail. So. It just things were going gangbusters, and I I started welding frames pretty quickly. I want to say within a couple of months, mm-hmm. and then and then it was just game on, like as as many bikes as you can do. Yeah. So I mean, I, I know you know this. Like you have a reputation in the industry for your welding. Uh, it's it's incredible. It's remarkable. Uh, but you know, like we all suck when we begin. Like no, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe maybe you took to it faster than other people. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. But like there was a time when you didn't have the experience and the quality. And mm-hmm. like, what was that learning curve like for you? Uh, how long did it take you to get up mm-hmm. to speed? And what do you remember being like stumbling blocks for you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I, like I said, I did come into it with, I mean, I had to have had at least a couple hundred hours of TIG welding mm-hmm. before I came to Moots. So I did have the opportunity to, to at least learn some technique for mm-hmm. sure. And when I took my community college course for TIG welding, um, I met the instructor, this woman, Connie Christopher was her name, and I was like, all I want to do is weld this thin tube to that thin tube. And I, <laughs> I actually, I like brought her mitered tubes yeah. to, sh- to show, and she's like, oh, awesome, cool. Yeah, you don't want a certificate? Okay, easy. <laughs> easy, you just want to learn how to do this thing. And, uh, and so she basically allowed me to just, have my own booth during the class and she was like yep just weld away and uh, if you got questions you know just holler that's pretty much how it was but she I still went through a lot of the um, like the classroom education mm-hmm. I still went through all that I just said I don't I'm not here to get a, a pipe certificate yeah. um, or certification I'm just this is what I want to do and uh, that gave me the opportunity to focus on that for for those hours that's awesome. Um, and, and maybe some I, specific instruction about tubes. And, oh, and yeah. The, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yep. And, uh, and then when I came out here to Moots, um, Butch Boucher was welding the majority of the frames. I think he was welding all the frames at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
he, you know, he had me doing sub assemblies and seat posts and stuff. And then it's like, okay, you want, you know, you want to try a frame. So started doing that. And pretty quickly he was like, okay, you're, you're good enough. You can, you can take over frames now, but it still wasn't perfect. I mean, I certainly was not perfect by any stretch. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I would say Butch became really my, my critic and mentor for perfecting the welding. And, and it was good. It was a good back and forth. I would, I'd show him what I'd, you know, here's what I've done. Mm-hmm. And he'd say, okay, you know, don't, don't go so hot here. Can you get this better looking and make that better looking? And, um, just back and forth through hundreds of frames. And the next thing you know, you, you got it down pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a thing of beauty to look at your welds and I'm sure that you're trying very hard to make it come out that well. Uh, but you know, like for you, like, what do you, if you had to explain to someone the recipe of, of like getting your welds to the highest level, I mean, it's, it's obviously lots of practice. It's obviously lots of Mm -hmm. critical thinking, like what kinds of, um, like broad strokes recommendations would you give to someone who is trying to really perfect their craft? Yeah, I'd say, I think because I did a lot of mechanical drafting mm-hmm. uh, in high school, and then I was even doing some mechanical drafting at ADEC, um, and that allowed me to really hone some of that control of your hands, um, especially when they're elevated because you have to hold your hands up for mechanical drafting. You're typically on a vertical board. Mm-hmm. And so that carried over really well to welding. And I think if I were to if I were to try to train somebody, a newbie today, um, I'd probably have them do some of those, you know, non-welding things, uh, attempt, attempt some other things, whether it, yeah, art or mechanical drafting, um, just to focus on that hand control yeah. um, and, mu- and muscle control. But then when you do move in to the TIG welding, I think that probably comfort, you know, being really comfortable mm-hmm. in your position, in your positions. Um, and I know you've been to wel- one, you know, welding seminar that I've given. Um, and I think I try to stress that quite a bit. Um, you yeah. need to be very, com- very comfortable just across the board. Yeah. Like fr- from, from what, how you're seated to the height, to how you're looking at your workpiece um, and how you're resting your arms or hands. So um, I know I you, think that's really important. You have mm-hmm. that, uh, that, that welding stand, the, the blue painted mm-hmm. one with the tire on the bottom, mm-hmm. that's adjustable for height and that, and mm-hmm. welding in a stand like that, rather than welding out in a fixture gives you the ability to swivel it around and height adjust. And, and that, that's a pretty big part of it. I imagine. It is. Yeah. The, the height of the stand itself remains fixed. Okay. Um, but all of those swivel, all of the the swiveling joints help hugely. Um, Do you change the height of I, your chair? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I I the the stand itself it does have height adjust, but it's not something that you would want to adjust while while you're welding a frame. Mm-hmm. But it's it's something that I'll I will adjust. It's been a long time since I've moved it because once you once you do find that sweet spot that you're hitting. <laughs> hitting all of the joints just fine with the with the height adjustability of your chair then there's no need to mess with it yeah um but that and like that stand i mean and anybody can check that out on on instagram or whatever um and kind of see how that's put together but the the funny thing is that that spare tire that acts as the base it's actually resting on the tire itself and it gives a little bit of damping. So I'm sure you've had like, or you've had the experience where you have a, like a park stand with a big solid steel base. Mm-hmm. And if there's, a, if there's a grain of sand, that thing rocks. Yeah. So that's what you want to avoid because those minute rocking movements will can screw up your welds. Yeah. So having that, having that damping effect of the, the tire under the, stand is really nice um you could achieve it other ways but the the spare tire is pretty easy (laughs) yeah 
The uh, I think the first time I ever met you was yeah, 2015 Louisville Nabs. You were doing a, a TIG welding seminar, and I don't think I was even that aware of who you were or your story, but I was like, oh, cool, a, a TIG welding seminar, and then it was excellent. And I seem to remember this a long time ago that one of the things you were talking about was sort of like, you know, the 80-20 rule, right? About like yeah, focusing yeah. 80% of your... Uh, explain how that applies to TIG welding. Well, so... I think what I was specifically talking about was your tungsten grinding mm-hmm. because uh, people will get just anal about tungsten grinding and they will waste so much time trying to get a perfect <laughs> grind on a tungsten yeah. only, to, only to dip it in the puddle, you know, two minutes later. Yeah. So, you know, spend, you know, get, get your tungsten to 80% of perfect and spend 20% more time welding. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That was my, I think that was the rule I threw, okay. I threw into my, my seminar. Um, because, because yeah, uh, the tungsten does not have to be perfect. It needs to be damn good, but it doesn't have to be perfect. And, yeah. you know, for me personally, it's, and I probably go through like, four to six tips during a frame weld. Mm-hmm. Um, but back in the day, compared it was, to what I can do. <laughs> yeah. Well, but back in the day, I mean, I would certainly probably even grind, grind a round of, uh, 10 tungstens in the middle of welding a frame. Yeah. You know, so the more time, more time spent actually perfecting and practicing the, the welding process versus be- becoming a perfect tungsten grinder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you use yeah. a diamond wheel? No, no, I don't. Actually, I use a aluminum oxide um, 120 grit wheel. I just I dress it often, and I just I just go fast. I mean, it probably yeah. takes me five five seconds to grind a tungsten. Nice. Do you just spin that with your fingers, or do you use the cordless drill mm-hmm. thing? No, no, raw fingers. Nice. Um, that's it's just worked for me. Um, like I said, it's just one of those things that I found uh, personally. The less time I can spend on grinding tungstens, the better. Just get back in the seat and keep welding. Yeah. Um, I do have a diamond grinder. Uh, if anybody wants to buy it. um i do have i do have one but uh the wheels just don't ever seem to last very long at all and it's not worth it they're very expensive yeah so um yeah so so i have the list of questions here let's get to the next one uh you know you you do a ton of racing and riding outside of racing too Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that that makes you, uh, for anyone, that would make you a better uh, bike designer the more experience mm-hmm. you have going in and the more that you ride, test, ride, test, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, how, how does that inform, you know, like you, you don't just build fat bikes. You've raced on them and you've you've won races mm-hmm. on them and, and Tour Divide and all these things. How does that, you know, come into play? And do you also, I guess a big question, but uh, when I talked to Brian Chapman, he talked about, or was it Wade from Vulture? Somebody was saying, talking about frame builder brain, where like they can't help but think too much about the design details while you're riding. Is that something that you mm-hmm. find as you're riding, you're thinking about the design again? Yeah. So uh, real quick, I just want to make sure I uh, I don't want anybody to think that I've completed the Tour Divide. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I've I've done sections of it. Okay. But uh, certain certainly have not completed it. Um, but yeah, I've done a lot of racing, you know, from road, cyclocross, mountain, fat, everything. And, and yeah, uh, it, it definitely helps, um, drive bike design. Um, when I'm out racing, I wouldn't say I'm thinking about bike designing. Mm-hmm. I'm probably just, just suffering at, uh, you know, maximal effort, but definitely when I'm out on, um, you know, just fun rides, uh, contemplating what I, what I am in, in, enjoying and what perhaps I'm not enjoying about the current bike I'm on, um, comes into play. But, 
well, I think it's important. I think it is important to know, um, like what a bike, what a bike is capable of doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so ra- racing is important to me. Um, certainly not, not probably not even the majority of my clients race their bikes at a, you know, at a high level. Mm-hmm. Um, but those that do, um, I'm sure appreciate it. And, and, you know, bikes do different things at race speed versus touring speed. Yeah. And, and it's good to understand the difference. Yeah. You, sure. You don't want to assume that, that racing always produces the best, um, design mentality because it's, it's, it's good for racing, but not necessarily everything else. Correct. Correct. And I, I think that the one place that that really, uh, really is highlighted is like, uh, enduro and downhill bikes mm-hmm. where, where what those bikes can do at race speed is just mind boggling, but what they do at three miles an hour up a technical trail <laughs> <laughs> is pretty, pretty un, not enjoyable. Uh-huh. So, yeah, so it's really, it, it's good to, good to understand that. Yeah. One of the things I want to ask you about is full suspension. You know, the full suspension mm-hmm. bikes are pretty ambitious for like a small handmade shop. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you have, uh, I know Oaks or maybe some other machine shops that will do mm-hmm. uh, CNC production of dropouts and different parts for you, including some of the suspension components. Uh, it's it's a complicated project and it can mm-hmm. be quite expensive up front, but you guys do that. Like what are what are some of the big hurdles involved with making full suspension bikes? Well, yeah, I mean, it can be, it can be hard to, to settle on a, on a suspension design as well. You know, just the, the swing link and how the shock is driven and such. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of the first hurdle. You got to feel pretty good about what you're, what you're producing. Um, and it can be expensive to do, you know, do prototyping and such. Yeah. So you, you need to have kind of a, a pretty solid base for of understanding for um, what you're putting together um which so i was involved you know with moots kent was building full suspension bikes at moots since i think around 95 i want to say 95 96 perhaps um he was doing a, a handful of bikes and they evolved over the years while i was there um and then after he he took off and left Moots, um, I stayed on. We we produced some of the, those old full suspension bikes like the Zirkel, um, and he, the the last bike that I worked on while I was at Moots was the Divide, um, which they don't produce anymore. Um, but that was a very complicated bike. Um, sorry, I digress. But uh, okay. <laughs> having that, I, I have had you know many years of experience building full suspension bikes. And when I came back over here uh, to work with Kent in, I guess it was the end of 2012. Mm -hmm. um, That was one of my first, my first goals was let's, we, let's do this. Let's, let's really, uh, let's apply what I can do to build a better all titanium full suspension bike. And, um, it took quite a while. It took mm, probably close, like eight to ten months mm-hmm. before that. Before that was um, production, like ready for any kind of mass production. Which mass production for a small builder are some pretty low numbers. Yeah. Um, but um, there's a lot of hurdles. You know, selecting, even just finding the right materials for housing the bearings. Yeah. finding the right the right size um, available materials that you're not going to waste you know end up boring out a solid chunk or something and wasting a bunch of material yeah um, but that was a project i don't know how many i don't know how many hours <laughs> i had into that the current full suspension bike um designing like the the welded together box section yoke that started out as a, like a 2d simple drawing moved into a solid model and solid works. <clears throat> and then you, know, 
you can you can do a lot of great stuff in SolidWorks, and you can actually like turn some of those um, planes into sheet metal parts. Yeah, and actually flatten them and and uh, have them water jet. But then you got to build all the tooling to bend everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a very big project, um, wow. and uh, and I'm get, I'm I'm actually at a point right now where I'm a, just about to dive into the next evolution of that bike. Wow! So see, so you'll probably see something. I hope um, maybe the first inklings of it in June or July. Wow, that's so and, ambitious. And, yeah, it's it's fun though because like that bike that I currently build, um we don't really have a name for it because <laughs> none of our bikes have model names. Mm-hmm. Um but I always I always refer to it as the V3 um because it was it ended up kind of being the the third version mm-hmm. of of the design. So um the V3 is just a damn good riding bike. It's uh because it has this really quite massive um, main pivot, has a, a 20 millimeter diameter main pivot. Um, <clears throat> the OD of those bearings are is 32 millimeters, mm-hmm. and they're they're a double row bearing. Uh, it's it's a single race, but it's two rows of balls. Okay. And that whole setup is just so stiff, um, and so all you really feel is the travel of the bike and the tight the the resiliency and that lively feel of titanium is able to come through you know it's not a it's not a whippy bike it's not a soft riding bike it's just spot on that's awesome but you want to you want to take it even further to make v4 i would like to take it uh to a bike that's 27.5 plus compatible okay and uh and then also larger larger volume 29 compatible mm-hmm. i'd like to be able to offer that yeah is that a big seller for you do, do you do you move a lot of those bikes through the shop the full suspension yeah no not a not a ton i'd say a, a good year i probably build six of them uh-huh. so yeah it's not very many at all um, <laughs> but it's they're fun to build yeah yeah, well, I mean, yeah. it's it's remarkable too to be able to offer that in titanium at like you know mm-hmm. the highest production level. Uh, nobody else is doing that. No, no, I mean, there's like Linsky produces a titanium uh, full suspension frame, and it's actually a fairly similar, you know, fairly similar if you look at it from a, a side shot, um, how the shock is driven mm-hmm. uh, and such. It's it's very similar, but I think they're the only. I think they're the only other ones, um, except for if you were to jump on Alibaba or something, you could probably find something. <laughs> yeah, very, very different. Uh, yeah, in a lot of regards. Um, yeah. Uh, I was going to ask you some. So, so you do Bingham built. You also yes. still are you still using the Kent Erickson brand a little bit? So we are not. We um, we still produce the ericsson cycles uh seat post okay um for the time being um you know we have over the past three years we have kind of slowly um built less and less ericsson's um mm-hmm. in, in 2019 i think we built two or three ericsson's um and so for 2020 we are we're pretty much retiring the ericsson branding mm-hmm. for for bicycle frames um, you know, Kent is still helping me out very, very rarely these days, but mm-hmm. when he does, it's a huge help. Um, I think since like since last July, he's worked about eight hours. Wow. So that's, he's you know, pretty much retired these days. And, and that was always the goal as well. It was a, it was a three year plan. So mm-hmm. we took over the, we took over the business from Kent at, the end of 2016 and um you know he he was signed on to help out for three years um and so that was that was my plan was to do my best to get him retired in three years (laughs) yeah so you 
So you bought mm -hmm. Kent Erickson Cycles, and then it's been in this transition through the name and yep. through the organization of it and the models uh, to, to sort Correct. of seamlessly uh, morph into uh, Bingham Built. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And because I, I look at it, there's no way, there's no way that if I would have just hung out my shingle that we would have had a successful brand as, as quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, and just my relationship with Kent and everything over the years has been really great. Um, it, it was just the right move. Yeah. So, so the, yeah. the brief timeline for anyone that doesn't know and correct me if I'm wrong mm -hmm. is that you started working at Moots in about 97 and then in yep. 2005, Kent, who is Kent Erickson, one of the original founders of Moots, he left mm -hmm. and moved to a different spot in the same town, Steamboat Springs, to start Kent Erickson Cycles. And after about seven years or so in 2012, you went from mm -hmm. Moots to Kent Erickson and you've been working with him uh, since. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And when I, when I did come on board with Kent in 2012, um, that was really the idea was that that at some point I would take over the business. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, yeah, he, he was... started a bike shop in Steamboat in, I think, 1974, right? Se yeah, 74 or 75. Yeah, yep. so he's been in it. He's been in the business oh, yeah. for a long time. <laughs> yes. Well-deserved retirement. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And uh, and he's still, yeah, he lives just a few miles out of town here. Um, I see him quite often. His, his wife keeps a office upstairs here in the same building. So, oh, cool. um, so we, we see them all the time and, and, and he is my landlord. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> so, uh, so, cause, I, so yeah. cause the shop that I'm, the shop that I'm working in here, um, is pretty amazing cause it's, it's downtown steamboat Springs. It's, we're about, uh, I don't know, 50 yards from the river. And this is the building where Moots was founded. Yeah. Which was, so there's been that would have been 1981. Th that, yeah, exactly. And uh, so there's been bikes, you know, being built out of this little little corner of steamboat for going on 40 years. Wow. And and it's really it's really fun. It's it's a cool spot. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Uh, the the history of something like that that you know you. We're working at Moots for a long time. You were working with Kent, the founder of Moots, and you worked at, you know, it's like there's all these, uh, it's like you have your own experience, which is plenty, but then uh, but then you, you were, you know, learning from and building off of what other people had done. I think that's really cool. For someone like me, I've been more of a loner, and I've been in these small towns <laughs> where there isn't that sort of history, and I haven't had the other people to learn from, and so I'm always, I always think that's really cool to see the ways that other people actually can build on something more directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I definitely, I definitely have, have Moots and have Kent to thank for, um, you know, giving me the opportunity to, to learn so much and, and apply myself to different aspects of frame building and, and yeah, running a business. So it's yeah. been great. What? I, still, uh, still learning. Yeah. Always. <laughs> Um, like what's a, what's an average year for your shop put out in terms of like, do you ship frame sets or just built bikes? So we, we do both. We do uh frame alone to complete bike with saddle and pedals, um, and everything in between. So, uh, but we're right at a hundred pretty mm -hmm. much. Um, you know, when, when, cause right now it's just three of us. So it's my wife, Hannah, mm -hmm. myself, and uh gentleman ed so ed and i do all of the fabrication um hannah runs the business uh website blog all that stuff mm -hmm. so when it was when it was kent and myself and ed we were doing about 30 more bikes a year mm -hmm. so about 130 100 somewhere right around 130 um and then now we're doing about right at a hundred. Yeah. That's a lot for a small shop like that with, I mean, just yeah. two fabricators. That's, that's a lot of bikes to push through. It is, it is. And it feels like it sometimes, um, <laughs> but, but it's, uh, it's, it's good. And, and it, to be honest, I don't, 
I don't adhere to any numbers. Yeah. You know, I don't, I'm not trying to hit a quota. I'm, I'm simply producing what I can produce. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, what's with all the frame fixtures? You have like something like three or five or so mm -hmm. anvil frame fixtures set up. And I noticed they're yeah. not all the same. You have the Supermaster and you have the some journeyman. Yeah. So you have different series and then you've outfitted them. I, I paid close attention to the way that you support the chain stays and the seat stays, but you have a number of them. And I've, I've wondered, mm -hmm. is that so that you can have multiple bikes in process the way that you maybe build batches or what, what's the thinking there? Yeah. So, um, you know, I am kind of a, I'm definitely kind of a tool hoard, uh, <laughs> hoarder, <laughs> but, uh, I like, I like the ability to, to have multiple frames going at one time. Yeah. You know, um, I don't like, I don't like to have to tear something down to set, to set something else back up, uh, you know, momentarily. Yeah. Um, there's, I, I think that I do have quite a bit of that production mentality in me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so that's where that comes from. Uh, so like, for instance, um, like right now I have, I've, I've kind of set the, the, the Anvil journeyman jig aside for the time being. And I've focused on these three supermasters that I have mm -hmm. and getting them all dialed with, similar setups, you know, very, very similar. They're identical tooling, really, setups. Um, so right now I have three bikes started, three, three going. Mm -hmm. And it allows me to, uh, you know, if I have a setup going on a mill for a chainstay kit, that I know I have a bike coming up maybe a couple weeks down the road, that is a really, really similar chainstay setup, mm -hmm. then I can go, I can go ahead and, and make that small adjustment in the tooling, cut that chainstay set, verify it in a different jig while I have the other one still set up. I just don't have to mess with anything. Yeah. And, and that's important to me. That's just, it is an efficiency, mm -hmm. um, however, however small it is. Yeah, it's probably just less brain damage yeah. <laughs> for me. Um, but also, uh, the way I operate is basically I get a I get a frame mitered in the jig, complete, and then I hand it off to Ed, and he'll do all of the uh, you know vent hole drilling and all of the buffing and uh, wheeling and prepping it for the ultrasonic cleaner. Mm -hmm. So during that time, that jig is occupied. I can grab another one and start rolling right into another frame. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So I don't have to wait for that frame to be complete to start another one. Mm -hmm. And um, that's that's kind of why all the jigs. And then I think, as, like I mentioned with the full suspension, uh, it's kind of nice to be able to just do front ends for the full suspension on a single jig. Oh, okay. So I'll probably continue that perhaps with the with the journeyman jig. Oh. So it's nice. It's nice having options. <laughs> yeah. No, it is. I mean, uh, there's uh, there's parallels to you know all sorts of stuff that I do with the CNC process, where like mm -hmm. you know if you can just keep something set up, even if it doesn't save you that much time, it makes it yeah. easier to get started again, and it's like less of a mental hurdle. And yeah, I, I yeah. absolutely see the advantage of that. I mean, yeah. you know, it's a it's a luxury, but like you know, you spend your your mm -hmm. life making these bikes. You know, it's a it's maybe a relatively mm -hmm. cheap luxury for what it is, really. Right, right. And I actually, I kind of fell into, so I, did, I didn't really intend to end up with three Supermasters, uh -huh. um, but Steve Potts was getting rid of his, mm -hmm. and for whatever reason, that same day, I was actually, I was on a trip when, he, when I saw a post that he was thinking about getting rid of his Supermaster, and um, I texted him right away, and I was like, hey, man, <laughs> can I... Can I have first right of refusal? And he's like, absolutely, you're, it's yours. And so when I did that, I was, I was, like I said, I was on a trip, and I actually just 
I jumped on the computer and I forget why I did a quick search for, you know, Supermaster for sale. And this old frame building blog post came up from this guy who was selling one of the old 2007 Supermasters that has the twin vertical rails. Uh-huh. And I read the post and I'm like, God, it was, it was like a two-year-old post. I was like, I wonder if this thing is still around. And I emailed him and sure enough, he still had it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was a, uh, it was a, very very good price so i was like i can't i'm not going to pass this up he had been sitting on it for two years so probably at that point the price had uh, (laughs) hit the sweet spot exactly so so that's kind of what you know this all happened last kind of last summer last fall and uh Mm -hmm. that got my wheels turning okay cool i can set the i can set the journeyman jig aside and focus on getting these three tooled up the way i like them yeah and that's what I, that's what I've been doing the past couple of months, uh, really focusing a lot of my spare time on getting those tooled up. Yeah, the uh, the Supermaster has a, a huge amount of standoff from the fixture, which would be really nice if you're mm-hmm. welding in the fixture. Mm-hmm. I know you don't weld in the fixture. How do you like that standoff? Correct. Uh, it is nice. Um, you know, I think that like I, I I watched one of your stories recently talking about kind of that that lever arm that affects some of the adjustments in the jig yeah and it certainly has the the supermaster is just in general for that like the chainstay yeah um holder certainly has some of that friction yeah um there's a couple little tricks you can do to them to eliminate some of that but uh um but having that standoff is not a bad thing yeah by any stretch you know you can, although I got to say, like, because I've tacked quite a few frames in the Journeyman, I've tacked a lot of frames in the Supermasters, and there's not a real big difference between the two. So, mm-hmm. so not having the standoff would is certainly not a deal breaker by any stretch. I see. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. it's it's cool that uh you know for me in the sort of tooling biz to be able to go back and study what other people like Don Ferris were doing at different points. You know, he, mm-hmm. he had the idea to have a higher end and a lower end frame fixture. He offered that for a while and then he kind of, you know, split the difference. And, uh, you know, it's mm-hmm. interesting to me to see the, the sort of historical, uh, lineage of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it's interesting. I've always, I've always appreciated more the the supermaster style um i didn't didn't really care that much for that the angular bottom bracket drop measurement yeah um of the journeyman of yeah, the, the old journeyman type two or whatever yep mm-hmm. and uh you know although i gotta say that in in my experience it actually it does work great um it just makes you think a little more mm-hmm and uh and that's it that's important yep so it i don't like to say that anything's foolproof but uh it's easier to make a mistake in that style of jig yeah yeah uh well i mean that's most of the questions that i had for the interview with you yeah i mean um Mm -hmm. uh, welding obviously is a big thing to talk about i think we hit that pretty well uh, what what do you like to do for pulse settings uh, generally? Mm-hmm. So mine is, you know, mine's analog. Um, I'm using an old PC 300, um, and that's on a SynchroWave 250. Mm-hmm. Um, so I typically do like I'm just kind of looking at it right now, but um, background amperage is about 15%. Pulses per second is probably about 1.3, mm-hmm. um, and percent on time is around um, 17. Yeah, yeah, it's a short, big bolt burst of of current, and then just a little bit of background amps, right? Yeah, yeah. I find that if you have the, if you keep that background amperage too high, um, the the filler rod will slide around quite a bit during that time mm-hmm. because that background amperage, that, that heat is maintained and then it just, 
you're you you get too much of a molten tip of the filler rod while it's waiting for that next pulse. Yeah. Um, yeah. Here's one for you. What for people getting started with titanium? How do you mm-hmm. how do you know you've evacuated atmosphere from the frame and that it's just full of argon? I mean, you could spend a lot of time mm-hmm. filling the frame mm-hmm. and tipping it and shaking it and all that. Like, uh, mm-hmm. how do you go about doing that? And like, how do you ensure that that you've done the job before you start welding? Right, and that that does come down to experience um, as far as timing, but also experience as far as um, how much venting you have. Um, and so there is no way really to truly know that you're a hundred percent purged. Um, but like for, for myself, um, I've got two lines, two purge lines running into the frame. And, you know, we'll just use the frame as an example. Um, two purge lines running in and really the only escape of, of any size is out of the dropouts. Mm-hmm. So maybe losing a little bit um, out of the, the bottom bracket purge because it's not a, a totally sealed system. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe losing a little bit out of the seat tube, but not, not very much. The majority of the venting is happening out, out of the dropouts. Yeah. Um, but I set, my, I set those two purge lines you know, with flow meters at right around 5 uh, CFH mm-hmm. and let that hang out for anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes. So that's a, that gets it very well purged. Is that, is that a matter of like, um, you know, like rotationally, our argon is heavier than atmosphere, so you can think of it as mm-hmm. sort of like water. It fills like from the bottom up. Uh, do, do you do that with the bike sort of upside down and the dropouts at the highest point? Or? I do, I do, although I have, I've had the experience where if I, if I do leave something, even, even if I feel that it's positioned properly, um, if it's stagnant, it doesn't always do a full purge. Mm-hmm. So, so I'll like rotisserie it, yeah. you know, um, during that time, I'll just, I usually u- utilize that initial purge time to just kind of hang out near the, near the frame. Um, I try not to do too many other things and I'll kind of, I'll flip the frame every minute or two I see. and keep doing that and just, yeah. Cause you really, you really want it purged well. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, especially if you're doing like a, you know, if you're doing real thin wall stuff, which I do a lot of very thin, a lot of very thin seat stays and very thin chain stays. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important that it be fully purged before you get after it. Yeah. Um, and then you, you know, you can also, um, you can also test yourself pretty easily, like with a, a bench top setup where you just grab a tube grab a length of tube and purge it for what you think is an acceptable amount of time and then lay a bead on it, open it up and look at it. Yeah. And, and that works really well to kind of understand how long it takes because I do a lot of, uh, like internal hydraulic routing. Um, and that all of those welds occur before the tube is mitered. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that tube is being purged on the, like in a pan of ice on the bench top. Yeah. You know, they make those, I feel like the technology, the price of it has gone down so much for like inspect, like bore inspection cameras. I know. Is that something that you have actually been able to use at all or that you're interested in? It's something that I've been very interested in for about a year. And I, yeah, because I've, um, Back when I was doing uh, an airstream restoration project, mm-hmm. um, that's I, beautiful, I by bought, the way. Yeah, thanks. I bought a uh, or I bought a few parts from a aircraft um, supplier, uh, aircraft tool company, and they had a really a pretty affordable. I think it was like less than six hundred bucks mm-hmm. for a for a bore camera, and I'm sure they're even cheaper now. Yeah, but. I really contemplated buying one and, and 
I probably will at some point, but, uh, you know, there are enough locations on the frame that you can verify yourself on. Yeah. That, you know, it's probably, it's, it might make you feel good. Put that camera in there and be like, oh yeah, it's shiny silver. (laughs) Um, but whether or not you, you need it. Yeah. Well, for you, you know, you have a process that clearly is working and you've done it enough to know, but, uh, for someone getting started, if the price gets affordable Mm -hmm. enough, that might be a really good way to verify that you're, you're not just, you know, making dangerous, uh, (laughs) death trap Mm -hmm. bikes. Yeah, most definitely. I, I agree. I think those are, those have got to be very useful tools. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be fun to, uh, snake some uh internal internal wires and stuff using one of those yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah cool well uh i I don't want to hold you too long i know you got bikes to make so thanks so much for being on the call uh your your welding is inspiring uh to me and i'm sure uh, most of our listeners and uh thanks for doing what you're doing and thanks for taking the time to be on the show yeah i appreciate it yeah thanks and then you as well and excited to see what you've got coming up cool thanks a lot and um yeah yeah. keep it up awesome we'll talk to you later man yeah bye bye